0: back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise.
1: I'm Shay. And this is as upbeat as we're going to sound throughout the rest of the episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is a good movie. It's a great movie. I think this is one of my favorites I've seen this year for this podcast. But of course, there's going to be a lot of kind of depressing content.
1: Yeah, definitely lots of things surrounding depression, suicide. So if you're sensitive to that, maybe sit this one out or watch the movie beforehand so that you're prepared for what we're talking about.
0: But this was requested, right? It was requested by Kendra, friend of the podcast. She just told me it was really good, that we should cover it. And here we are. (laughs) This
1: gives Babadook in terms of its themes, has a lot to do with grief, sadness, what we
0: do with it. There's like metaphorical aspects here. A lot of also just really striking cinematography were on a lake most of the time during this movie. So there's nature scenes, pathways, of course, a lot of looks out into the water. So again, kind of heartbreakingly beautiful, like everything working together. It's a lot. Still processing, I think.
1: Yeah, we are talking about The Night House from 2020. Starting in with our ladies, we have Beth Beth is played by Rebecca Hall. She is an award-winning actress known for The Gift, The Prestige, The Town, and a 2009 film adaptation of Dorian Gray.
0: What?
1: I haven't seen it, but now I want to.
0: I don't think I've ever seen a film adaptation of The Picture of Dorian Gray. I think the closest thing I've seen is the Penny
1: Dreadful series. They cover like a lot of old English, Victorian, Gothic novels and kind of make them exist in the same universe. You would like it.
0: Yeah, I would like it. It's a
1: horror series. Like it mixes Frankenstein and Dorian Mm. Gray and a lot of other gothic horror novels and kind of just makes them exist in one space. Dorian Gray was a character in that, which I really liked. We also have Claire, who is played by Sarah Goldberg. She is a Canadian actress known for shows like Barry and Hindsight. And then we have Madeline, who is played by Stacey Martin. And she is a French actress known for Nymphomaniac and lots of British and French films. The movie is directed by David Bruckner. He's known for The Signal, The Ritual, which is also like a really good movie about loss and grief.
0: The Ritual. Is that that guy that goes to that island to save his sister or something? No. Oh, (laughs) (laughs)
1: it's about a group of guy friends
0: oh friend
1: gets murdered and they go hiking in his memory because what they do as a friend group they each like choose where they're going to do their holiday that year and it was his idea to do this very specific hike and while they're on this very specific hike they encounter a lot of like woodsy demon stuff going on but there's no women in it because it has gotten requested but i'm
0: like yes it has no ladies. No ladies. No, no, not a single essence of woman. No.
1: It's a great movie it has no women in it.
0: One time we almost watched that. Do you remember? I think so. We ended up watching that other movie instead, which is the one I got it confused for, I think, because in my head when I first saw that title, it was, we were weighing it with this other title. It's like the guy goes to save his sister from this like puritanical culture. It's called... Apostle. Yes. Apostle. And
1: I think you liked that. It was creepy.
0: It was creepy and weird. I mean, I saw it way back when I had only seen like a handful of horror movies. It was kind of like a part of that string of movies we watched that made me feel like I could do this podcast, (laughs) like um, As Above, So Below, rewatching Silence of the Lambs, like watching Apostle, whatever. It had kind of some midsummer elements, like there was like a Mother Nature plant, but there were also elements of Puritanism, which I always love because I think those are so captivating and interesting. There's a lot of comparisons between that and Wicker Man, too. Yeah, that folk horror Mm -hmm. kind of Maybe we'll cover that one day. I know, I mean, it focuses on a guy, but... He goes to save his sister, societal elements. I could totally see us revisiting that. I think it's a matriarchal society, too. So
1: I feel like there's stuff for us to talk about there. David Bruckner is also known for segments of the VHS franchise, which I enjoy. Southbound and 2022's Hellraiser. Nice. So are we ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. How do we open?
0: Okay, so we open. We are getting some establishing shots. There's a small fishing boat knocking against a dock. There are wind chimes we can hear blowing in the breeze. There's dark gray lighting, and we are at a lake, and we see a lake house next to that lake. More establishing shots suggest that this might be the home of an architect. We see a desk with blueprints, a lot of pen and pencils, but as we get the shots of the house, it's empty, it's dark, as if nobody's home. We also see a couple of cute couple pictures. There's a couple that lives in this house, clearly. And right after we get a couple shots of some of those photos, we pan over to the front door and see our lead girl, Beth, arrive home in all black. A friend walks her to the door, gives her a covered casserole dish of sorts and says her goodbye. Beth walks into the house, takes a look at the casserole and throws it out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She seems pissed, exhausted, tired. And of course, the black is setting the scene. Did she come from some kind of funeral? And spoiler, she did. We get the title card, and then we
1: see her standing with a glass of wine, spinning a piece of paper in her hand that you can tell she's working herself up to read. She takes a peek at it, puts it down, and then ends up covering it up with the envelope and chugs her wine. So, is this a note from the person that died? Spoiler alert, yes. We'll come to find out more (laughs) about that later. She descends the stairs and I like how she intentionally like cowers away from who we soon find out to be her late husband Owen's office space. Like she's like, nope, like not even looking at the space that belongs to him. And instead goes into the garage to find another bottle of alcohol where we then see a little bit later she's sitting with that bottle now half empty Mm. and she's watching their wedding video. Both are all smiles. It seems like a very joyous occasion And this is the first of many instances where I noted that she seems a lot more angry than upset.
0: Yeah, definitely. Later, she's lying in bed, staring at the empty space next to her. I thought the scene was so striking because there is still like the indent of a head in the pillow next to her. Mm -hmm. Like, this is so fresh. Like, I kept thinking, I was like, a week ago, I bet he was still alive. Like, how that passage of time, like, so much can happen in such a short period of time sometimes. But suddenly, as she's laying there, there's a knock on the door. Three knocks. Boom, boom, boom. She doesn't really react. Of course, she becomes more alert. Then we hear the three knocks again. She gets up, goes downstairs to inspect. And I wrote, the front door is all window, baby. I was literally saying (laughs) giving scream
1: because it reminds me of that Casey Becker scene where she's doing the trivia and her boyfriend's in the backyard because the wall is just all windows. And
0: not a blind to be found. Not a curtain. Not a blind. The house from Orphan, also the house of an architect. Why don't you like privacy, <laughs> architects? It's all about the natural light. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah, no, I would like some privacy, or at least, I don't know, the illusion of safety. <laughs> Put some tints on that shit. You're not gonna yeah. get hot.
1: That's a good point. Do you remember that sociology class we took in college that was like an offset of a residence hall and it was just all window walls and it felt like you were in an incubator anytime you went to that class?
0: Yeah, I do. Same feeling. But the good news is he didn't take attendance. He didn't. So we didn't really go to that class a lot. Never.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And he also had a policy that you could dispute your grade if you could convince him. Why you thought the answer that you wrote was better than the answer that he wrote, he'd be like, okay.
0: There was a lot about him that felt stereotypical sociology professor. Yeah, he was like, if the majority agrees, then I must be wrong. I did appreciate that it seemed like he focused a lot on entertaining himself. Yes. I mean, did I learn anything in that class? Who's to say? Who is to say? <laughs> Who is simply to say? But he was a nice guy. Anyway, <laughs> back to the movie. Not a shade to be found but she doesn't find anything. She doesn't see anything outside. She doesn't see anything in the house. But there is a shape of a
1: man in the glass behind her that disappears once she closes the door.
0: Yeah. So she doesn't see it, but we do. And it's very spooky. It kind of reminds me of Peter Pan's shadow. So the next morning she is up and out, but not before noticing that the gate down to the boat dock is swinging open in the breeze. So based on her expression, it's not supposed to be like that. She walks over to see what's up, relatches the gate, and she sees, are these like muddy footprints? They must be muddy footprints. They're muddy, yeah. Leading up from the dock. So again, the dock that you have to descend this set of stairs to go to, but they are walking up seemingly out of the water to the gate. And they're bare footprints as well, like not boot prints, like footprints. All of a sudden, as she stares at these footprints, trying to figure out what to make of them, a gunshot rings out in the distance. And I'm interested in this because the birds in the trees surrounding the area react and fly away as a group. So, like, we're kind of going to get into some scenarios later where we're maybe questioning reality of certain things. But, like, this gunshot is a real gunshot because the birds react. It's not just in her head. But they fly away Beth just is kind of like, what the fuck, and goes to work. And it looks like she's a teacher. (laughs) She arrives. It looks like some sort of staff meeting. Maybe it's an in-service day. She accidentally slams the auditorium door. It's a little embarrassing. And everyone in there is wearing the expression, why the fuck are you here right now? Like, you shouldn't be here. She chats with her friend Claire, who kind of puts words to that concern. She's like, why are you here? And Beth is like, I had grades to enter. Too real for you, I imagine. Too real I especially love the next scene. Oh, yeah, this is all you. I love it. Okay, so later she's sitting at her desk. She's looking at houses on Zillow and then nods off. And when she wakes up, she sees that on her screen she had been searching guns. It gave me kind of a little jolt. Like she fell asleep looking at houses and woke up and there was guns on her screen. And, like, how much of that
1: was her thinking, like, maybe that's what Owen was looking up, or how much of that was she
0: actually was looking up guns and she thought it was houses, or how much of that is her grief, like, you don't actually know. Exactly. All of a sudden, a mother, like, a student's mother, shows up in her doorway, she shuts her laptop, the mother introduces herself, she says she's Hunter's mom, (laughs) Beth is like... I have a lot of hunters. And the mom's like, how many? And she's like, three. But look, that could be a lot of hunters, okay? There's too many hunters. Too many, too many hunters. Okay, anyway. We she's- need some gatherers. I'm sorry. We <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get some gatherers in here, okay? We have an uneven distribution. Anyway, the mom sits down and she's like, I'm here to chat about Hunter's grade in your class. It looks like he got a C in his speech class. Beth, being a good teacher, opens her laptop. She searches up the student. She says, oh, you know, right here, he didn't do one of his projects. And the mom's like, okay, well, he said that you told him he could make it up. And she's like, I did. And then, of course, it turns out that Beth missed a day that this student allegedly came in, which, by the way, was the last day of school to make up this project. So Beth is like, oh, okay, I wasn't here that day. I'll just change it to a B. So she just changes the grade. But the mother seems unhappy. She says that she still wants to know why her son got a C. So then Beth launches into a monologue, which is where we finally get a little bit more context as to what's going on. So she spills to this mother that, well, she actually wasn't on school that day because she was at her husband's funeral, who had shot and killed himself by paddling out on their little fishing boat to the middle of the lake that they live next to and shooting himself. So, of course, this mother is horrified. But I loved this moment because as a teacher, I have this whole theory. I might have said this way back in our episode about the faculty. But I have this theory about the way adults think about teachers. Most people do not become trained educators. (laughs) Like, just they don't. So, a lot of people, their last experience with a teacher was when they were young and in school. They formed maybe like uninformed, immature ideas about teachers. And I think that they just kind of carry those opinions with them into adulthood, like this sense of feeling as a child, maybe you had a teacher who was out to get you, but being too immature to ever realize that that might not necessarily be the case. And then growing up and carrying that with you. And this moment with the mother who came in ready to confront this teacher, like, how dare you not be here when you said my son can make up this project? It's like, don't forget that, like, you know, we have humans working with humans you don't have to come prepared to battle. Like we can talk about this and be really mature. But anyway, that's kind of my theory. I thought this interaction was really realistic in that way. I remember even talking in that
1: faculty episode. It's like some little kids presumptions that like teachers live at school, they don't have an identity outside Mm -hmm. of what their relationship is to that teacher. And that's something that you mentioned prior to recording that you loved about this movie is that other than this like slight interaction about Hunter who we never (laughs) fucking meet, this is not about kids and this is not about kids' grief. Even Mm -hmm. though she's a teacher, this is very much just about a partner mourning a partner.
0: Once we get to the end and we have our post-plot conversation and we can make more of those connections to the Babadook, I think that I would love to revisit that. Especially because, you know, I'm a childless person and you are a childless person. And so I feel like not that I couldn't watch The Babadook and relate to Amelia or even her son in the way that her son felt watching a parent go through a hard time. I could watch this movie with Beth and feel a sense of connection. And she's not very old. Like she's probably like 35. And, you know, I feel leagues closer to 35 than I do to being like some 17 or 18 year old kid in high school. I felt like watching her was relatable. And I've also never been married. So I I can't, you know, appreciate that aspect of things maybe fully (laughs) because they had been together, I think, for 14 years at one point, she said. They even mentioned like, oh, my God, you got married so young. Yeah, I'm
1: thinking like, what is that like 21 at the youngest, probably maybe
0: anyway, they got married, quote unquote, young. And now she's on her own for the first time. And there are no kids in the picture. I think it really does kind of feed into isolation. And this also makes me think too, like, yeah, it's the last day of school. So she is a teacher, yes, but she's about to go on summer break. Summer break? (laughs) I know people like to think that summer break for teachers is just like a nonstop free-for-all, but it can be really challenging, especially if you have a brain that works better when it's in a routine. It can be really, really challenging to acclimate to, I don't know, less structure especially if you're dealing with something like a massive loss in your life. Some people might think they'd rather experience something like this when maybe they had time off from work to process, but that can actually be really (laughs) terrifying when you feel like you don't have things to distract yourself or you don't have your coworkers. Claire is in her department, it seems, and is her best friend. So like going away for summer break, she's not seeing Claire as much as she would if they were at work. And I think it feeds into this growing sense of distance that Beth starts to experience, feel, or facilitate between her and the people in her life.
1: She drives home, unloads some moving boxes, showing us that she has an intention to get the fuck out of there when she can and sees that her gate to the dock is open again. But this time her neighbor Mel walks up from her dock saying that he covered her boat for an upcoming storm. So she has a little paddle boat that is attached to her dock and he took care of it for her. And he even offers, hey, listen, I'll take this boat away from you if you want me to so that you don't have to deal with it. Again, alluding that boat is how her husband Owen committed suicide. But she's like, no, I'll keep it. I'm going to sell it when I sell the house. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're thinking about selling. And she's like, yeah, well, I know he built this house, but... And she just kind of lets that statement trail off, kind of showing that she's still a little bit unsure of her decision, but that this house obviously has a lot of sentimental value to her. And then she asks him, were you out shooting this morning? But he's like, no, I wasn't. And that he didn't hear any shots. But if he hears anything again, just call him. He'll check on her. You know, do you have anybody to take care of you? And she just kind of brushes his nice advances off. He's like a nice older gentleman. We don't get creepy vibes from him. No, he is the best. He's so pure. He's so pure. (laughs) We love love Mel. Yes. (laughs) But he leaves... Later, we see that she is watching home footage of Owen working on the house, like building the house up from scratch, and she is watching angrily. She shuts it off, throws all the home movies in a box haphazardly, and begins packing away his clothes and belongings in trash bags. So she is really trying to fuel these emotions and just trying to get this project done. And as she continues packing, she finds a sketchbook that Beth had gifted Owen, where he first mapped out plans for their house. So she sits and looks through his drawings and stops when she sees drawings of what look like mazes or labyrinths, confusing patterns, and a note that says, confuse it, don't let it in. And she sees a term called Caerdonia. This is a Welsh word, so if I'm fucking that up, Oh, it's Welsh? I feel like
0: if it's Welsh, there's got to be some kind of like extra special pronunciation. Part of me thinks it's like Quidonia. Maybe... I'm fucking it up. There's gotta be a curveball in there somewhere.
1: Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. So just, (laughs) just, uh, (laughs) forgive me. But she sees all these notes saying reverse floor plan backwards, and she ends up shutting the book in frustration, not necessarily knowing what to make of all of these things that she found.
0: That night, Beth is upstairs sleeping again, when all of a sudden she is awoken to the sound of the stereo spontaneously start playing downstairs. Of course, it wakes her up. It's playing very loudly. And before she can even process what's going on, she gets a text, looks at her phone, and it's from her husband Owen's number that says, in all caps, COME DOWN. I just got chill. I just got <laughs> chills of revisiting this. So she texts back and asks who this is, because, of course, she thinks, is this some kind of sick prank? Who has her husband's number? But Owen responds, don't be afraid. She calls the number and the line picks up, but there's just static nothingness. But then we hear what we assume to be Owen's voice kind of breaking through the static sound and tell her to look out the window. So she gets up, slowly looks out the window and sees a naked Owen standing on the water of the lake like Jesus facing away from the house toward the other side of the lake. Then suddenly she lurches awake and finds that it is the next morning.
1: She goes into the room because she woke up on the floor of the bathroom. And this is a theme that we have been seeing a couple times throughout. The first time she woke up, she was on the floor of Owen's office. Now she's waking up on the floor of the bathroom, which is maybe showing that she's very unwilling to visit the bed that they shared or it's a painful place for her. Sewing this line between what's real and what's not real, which we'll find a little bit later. And she finds her phone plugged in and looks at her messages to confirm that last night was a dream. She has to scroll to find Owen's name. And the last conversation they had was about her picking up tacos on the way home from work and that he missed her. So no recent messages. It was all a dream. She's still a little suspicious. So she goes to her car to go through Owen's belongings that are in a box, which we assume is from a coroner. She plugs his phone in to confirm that the last messages were what they were. There were no texts exchanged last night. But she uses this opportunity to scroll through his camera roll, looks at pictures of them, starts reminiscing, and then she finds a picture that she thinks is of her from a distance, but once she zooms in,
0: she's not so sure that it's actually her. She immediately goes to talk to her friend, Claire, about it. And through her conversation, we get some information about why she's so suspicious. First of all, she doesn't have that shirt and she doesn't even know where the picture would have been taken. But Claire is like, it's probably you. She reminds Beth that Owen loves her very much and Beth seems like, okay, fine. But I was thinking about this a lot. It would take a lot for somebody to talk me into accepting that a picture is of me when I was sure that it wasn't. You know, the places, you know, and you know, the shirts that you have, which is enough in itself. Like, I thought it was an interesting choice for Claire to kind of dismiss this because this doesn't really seem like, oh, I thought I put my coffee on that coaster instead of this. Like, it doesn't seem like something that you would slip up about. I think Claire just
1: realizes that she's in an immense amount of pain and she's like, just stop digging. Like you want to remember your husband for who he was. And there's even a moment where she says this later of even if he was a man who cheated on you, he's also the man you fell in love with. And both of them can be true at the same time. You finding out all these things is not going to make you hurt any less. Just like stop. Just stop doing this to yourself. She ends up inviting her out for drinks with their colleagues. And she ends up coming. And I wrote, LOL, me after one whiskey. They're talking about (laughs) all of this, like, departmental bullshit. And Beth just comes in. Do you guys believe in ghosts? (laughs) Which tanks the vibe (laughs) completely. Claire's like, oh, yeah, I believe. Beth goes on to say, well, there's a presence in my house that's watching me. I've been having all of these weird dreams. And this guy, Gary, is like, well, maybe it's sleep paralysis. Do you know what that is? And she's like, yes, Gary, I know what (laughs) sleep paralysis is. But what she says she's experiencing feels like the opposite. It feels like her body is awake, but her mind isn't. She tells them that Owen used to sleepwalk after he built the house, and now she thinks she is. Gary's like, listen, when you're married for that long, you spend so much time in the same space with someone that you're going to start to feel them there even when they're not. And then Claire does some sort of Shakespeare suicide soliloquy. I haven't read Old English in a while, so you might appreciate this more than I
0: have. No, I teach American literature. Mm. So like any Shakespeare knowledge I have is... Well, I took a class in college, but it was not a good class. The most knowledge I have is his comedies, because I was actually... in a Shakespeare play or two. Um, But also, I had a really cool eighth grade teacher who like actually did a really good job making sure we understood what was going on, at least in a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is pretty straightforward. So no, I didn't catch that this was Hamlet's suicide soliloquy. But it is. That
1: Claire starts like quoting just out of humor. And then she's like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, putting her foot in her mouth. But Beth kind of wants that interaction. Like she wants to actually talk about the rawness of it. And I think it's Daniel Sloss that does a stand-up bit about how when people die, there's people who give them am sorry's and there's people that I don't know what the other term for it is, but like being an I'm sorry doesn't help. But what this other woman seems to be doing of like, so wait, did he leave a note? Like, Mm. did you seriously not realize there was anything wrong? Like (laughs) treating the situation like it's a conversational thing and not treating you like you're made of glass is actually the most helpful thing you can do because you want to talk about how fucking absurd it all is but everyone's too afraid of dancing around how crazy it is. And this comedian Daniel Sloss talks about how like three days after one of his best friend's dad dies, he was making dead dad Mm -hmm. jokes, left, right and center. And it was the only thing that was comforting her because he wasn't treating her any differently than he normally would. He was being like the friend that she could rely on him being even if it wasn't sensitive. And she was just relieved that there wasn't someone treating her like glass. And that is a conversation that she is welcoming right now. It's like, well, did he leave a note? Like, did you really not see any signs? And Claire's just trying to be like, stop, 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 stop. And she's like, no, 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 no. I want to talk about this. She's like, no, I didn't know there was anything wrong. I was always the one who struggled with depression and dark thoughts. And Owen was the one that kept them at bay. But maybe I infected him with my bullshit. When asked if he left a note, Claire's like, no, 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 no. But Beth whips the note out of her purse. <laughs> and even the, co- the colleague is like, wow, you keep it in your purse. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, this shit is real. She then takes a dramatic pause and reads the note out loud. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now. Beth doesn't know what it means, besides that maybe she was living with a crazy person, but she really needs to know what it means. Claire has had enough, and is like, I'm taking you home, and then takes Beth home.
0: And I love how Beth goes, wouldn't want to keep him waiting. Like, again, (laughs) playing into that joking idea about that maybe her husband is haunting her house. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So at home, Claire tries to get Beth into bed, but Beth insists on sleeping in the living room. They continue having a conversation where Beth reveals that she actually does know what the letter means. Apparently, Beth used to live in Tennessee or she spent some time in Tennessee and she got into an awful car accident where she technically died for four minutes. When she came back and people learned what had happened, they would ask her what she saw on the other side. And even though Beth would say that she didn't remember what she saw, she did remember and she remembers seeing nothing. Owen was the only person that she ever told that she saw nothing during those four minutes that she was dead. And apparently, she says he was never satisfied with that answer. He believed that there had to be something. But now, in his death, with this note, even though he's telling her that she was right, there is nothing, Beth is saying that she starts to feel unsure, maybe there is something. They continue talking more about the you're safe now part, which is still remaining really cryptic even after this personal anecdote, but they don't really come up with any good ideas. Beth lays her head on Claire's lap and Claire plays with her hair, Or just like lightly pets her head as she lulls Beth to sleep. And then there is the scariest, (laughs) cacophonous, static, metallic sound there could possibly be as Beth is lurched back awake. I was unwell because it's such a sweet moment. She falls so peacefully into sleep and then it just wakes you right the fuck back up. And there's a demon voice yelling her name. Yeah. And this is where Shay and I are going to talk about Ethel Kane again. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't listen to Ethel Kane when we talked about her during especially Bones and All, but I think maybe a couple other times she has come up. This is giving like Ptolemya. Yes, it's giving Ptolemya. Yeah. So anyway, terrifying. Yeah, this disembodied voice, like you says, it's telling her to go to the door. She goes to the door, walks outside. She's investigating. And all of a sudden, oh my God, this was so scary. (laughs) All of a sudden, she hears a woman screaming. And as she whirls around to see where the noise is coming from, She sees a screaming woman running down the lawn kind of further away from the house. And then she sees another screaming woman following that woman and they both jump off the edge of the property into the lake. Then suddenly she whirls around and this is where she sees a third screaming woman who also looks exactly like either the first or second screaming woman. Like she's wearing kind of the same outfit. It kind of looked like it was one of the other women we already saw, which I think it could make sense either way. Not like logically, but with this movie. She runs past her and again off the ledge. So Beth follows the third woman. She looks over the edge. She doesn't see anything, but she's obviously shaken because in her mind, she's just seen three women screaming, running past her and jumping into the lake to their deaths. So as she looks out at the lake, she sees a light
1: on in a house across the lake. And then the voice says, the boat. She goes down to the dock and sees blood in the boat with Owen's belongings from the box. So the blood obviously being gunshot residue from him committing suicide. She turns to walk away, but then when she looks back, she sees footprints appearing on the dock. She calls to him, asks if Owen's really there, asks if you're here with me, show me. More footprints appear in front of her. She feels a gust of wind, like an energy is approaching her. She asks, is it really you? And this rush of energy sends her falling back gently into the boat, and the boat begins floating away, and she passes out. There is a blood moon. This is the first time we're seeing the blood moon, but it's going to come back. A very gorgeous red light is over the water and over her face, over the fog in the night. And the boat floats on, and as it hits shore, she wakes up. She gets out with a flashlight and approaches what appears to be her house. But she knows that she just went across a lake. So she's like, (laughs) what's going on? (laughs) The voice says, it's a dream. You're dreaming. And as she approaches the house, she sees a dark haired woman who looks like her in the windows. And as the woman walks away, another woman appears in another one of the windows. Each of the women are like looking out and then quickly retreating and being replaced by another woman in a different part of the all glass house. In the last one, she sees Owen approach one of these women from behind, get rejected and pushed away, and as she approaches the house, she sees that the address is backwards. So not that it's like a reverse of numbers, but it is reading backwards, like it's a mirror. So she tries to enter the door, it's locked, but then she uses the key under the pot, which again is a mirror of her own house, and as she enters, she sees the moving boxes and herself asleep on the couch. And then very quickly, the perspective shifts. We then see Beth waking up on the couch to her front door open in the daylight.
0: Yeah, so as if her soul left the Beth in the doorway and woke up in the Beth on the couch. So then, of course, that raises the question of, like, okay, this is Beth on the couch, but then is there a Beth still in the doorway? And then this was a moment where I was like, is this going to turn into, like, an others? Like, the others with Mm -hmm. Nicole Kidman situation? These duplicate houses, this disembodied voice, like, I think this is already an idea that we're playing with. Are we dealing with parallel universes? Mm -hmm. She opens up his computer. The first time it was his phone, now she's looking at his computer. She opens up his photo file, and she finds so many photos of women. But they're all captured in this voyeuristic way. We do not see the women looking at the camera. Again, we see more photos of the woman in the bookshop. It looks like she's doing her job or looking at books. And Owen is taking pictures unbeknownst to her. So it's building like this big creep energy. Whereas before there was a sense that maybe he was having an affair. But now there's a sense that he was a big creep who might have been stalking women. And there are other women. And for each woman, it looks like there are like 20 pictures of her and they all look like Beth. Yes, long brown hair, big brown eyes, her complexion, her height, about her body type. It's weird. So she shuts the laptop in frustration and goes out for
1: a walk in the woods trying to find the house again. And she finds Mel on the trail. She tells Mel, hey, I'm like looking for a house over here. Have you seen one? And he's like, there's no houses out this way. And this is where Mel like checking on her like, are you okay? You shouldn't be alone right now. Maybe you should come over for lunch sometime. And she's like, yeah, okay. Brushes him off and keeps it moving. She sees a tree with a weird marking on it and walks farther into the woods where she finds the house covered up in tarps. So it looks like it's mid-construction and not what it looked like in her
0: dream the night before. But also kind of like abandoned mid-construction. Yes. It's like not neat and clean. Like it doesn't look like it smells like sawdust. It looks like it smells like mildew. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) It's rained a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) So she goes inside,
1: starts walking around, calling out with no response she ends up ascending into the attic space and finding a weird pinhead lady looking voodoo doll of
0: sorts (laughs) on the ground. It looks like a woman on her knees with her hands bound to her ankles behind her. So very compromising position. And there are all of these pins coming out of her body, which is giving voodoo. Yes, and the
1: woman's naked. So I think that adds to it as well. So she feels a presence in the room with her and leaves with the doll. So she walks to Mel's house and demands to know, like, what's the doll? What do you know about the house? He says he doesn't know anything about the house, just that Owen would walk the woods at night sometimes and asked him not to tell Beth about it. But Beth's like, fuck that. Tell me everything you know. (laughs) So Mel said he caught him once, taking the route around the lake with another woman. Later that night, he had come by drunk, muddy, telling him about how he had urges, shameful urges, that he was trying to shake, and that he found a way to keep them at bay, but just please keep this secret for him. Mel says he only saw that happen once, and then after that, he seemed much, much better, and Mel warns her, like, listen, I know that you have a hole that he's left in your life, but do not fill that with something dark. Stop going down this rabbit hole. But of course, Beth will not listen. So later, she rifles through the packed books in his office, finds the handgun that he used to kill himself, but also a book called the Caer Droya or the (laughs) the the book, okay? Uh Big C book filled with pictures of the labyrinth from his sketchbook. He also finds information on the Louvet doll. This is French. We all know I'm not very good at French either. (laughs) So just (laughs) correct me. It zooms in on this piece of literature that reads, In Celtic traditions, the quidroya represented any series of simple mazes and reversed spaces intended to confuse or weaken dark forces. By distorting the identity and location of the subject, pursuing spirits could be satiated by false forms of sacrifice. So she shuts the book in frustration again, but notices that multiple books in his collection were sold by the same
0: store. So the next morning, she drives her Subaru to the bookstore. She goes in, she brings the book with her. She asks the clerk if they have any records about who bought what and when, but the clerk doesn't seem very helpful. So she is standing there probably feeling a little bit frustrated when she spots a woman working in some of the shelves in the back that looks like the woman or one of the women from Owen's photos. So she goes back, she takes a look at this woman, confirms that it is the woman she has seen and confronts her about knowing owen first she introduces herself first and last name that doesn't really seem to ring any bells the woman introduces herself back she says i'm madeline beth is like you know my husband owen the woman gets this look of recognition on her face beth assumes that madeline has slept with owen But Madeline insists that they did not know each other romantically outside of a few drinks. And then Beth asks her to take her hair down, which I thought was kind of interesting. Her doing so seems like it confirms her suspicions in some way. Did you have any thoughts on that moment? I thought that was because then the scene is over.
1: Yeah, I thought it was just her confirming to herself that the girl actually looks like her. I think it's like one of those things that when you see who your partner cheats on you with, where it's like, (laughs) is she like prettier than me? Or is she like this than me? Or whatever like that? And Claire had, you know, made mention earlier that if that's not you, it's someone who looks very much like you. And I think her taking her hair down mirrors Beth's silhouette a lot. True, yeah, because her hair is down. Because her hair is down. Yeah. And I think that like confirms this woman does look like me. Okay, like, is that supposed to make me feel better? I don't know. Later, she is telling Claire about the interaction, the other women on the computer, the dream of the backwards house, and Claire's like, stop. Nothing that she finds is going to help her now. Claire is worried about her. Beth is like, I felt Owen. I don't believe that Owen would ever say there was nothing. He was always this man that believed that there was like heaven and hell or there was something after death. He would never agree with me on those types of things. Claire is like, listen, how about you just come stay with me? But Beth claims it's not finished. She's like, listen, Owen's gone. You're not. You still have a life to live. Beth's like, okay, you're right. I'm going to go pack a bag and find somewhere to stay. And Claire's like, are you actually going to do that? (laughs) Yeah, are you? Like, are you? And Beth's like, yeah, of course. So Claire's just like, I love you. Okay, call me later and lets her leave. But you can tell that Claire's still very much worried about her very much unhinged friend at this point.
0: So back at the house, Beth enters and announces to the heir that she is leaving. So if the entity has something to say to her, he better say it now. She waits. There's no response. But right as she seems to give up hope, there are three knocks on the door. We've heard that before. Beth goes to the door, answers it, and it's Madeline standing there from the bookstore. Beth asks how Madeline knew how to find this place. She says that she has been to the house before, and then she joins Beth inside for a drink. Madeline says that she had a dream after she got home from work and napped that she was Beth, and she was running away from something in the house. So when she woke up, she couldn't stop thinking about Beth and decided to come over and talk to her. Madeline confesses that even though she is being truthful about not sleeping with Owen, She wanted to and thought that they might. So whatever their drinks were, it seemed like there was flirtation there. Madeline had hopes of being with him. Owen apparently had taken her on a walk around the grounds and took her to the mirror image house and had her hold the statue that we had seen. The pinhead statue. At this point in the story, Beth asks what he did to her. So, like, do you remember, like, what specifically cued Beth into the fact that there might have been some violence? Was it the conversation with Mel about maybe Owen's dark urges or something?
1: She asks for the first time after Madeline said that he asked her to hold the weird statue. Mm. And she's like, what did he do to you? And Madeline's like, nothing. He held me. He put his chin on my shoulder and cried. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do. And then she again is like, what did he do? do to you. And she's like, I kissed him. He kissed me back. It was sweet at first. So I didn't stop him when he put his hands on my back and then my neck until he started squeezing. She was like, did he hurt you? Madeline's like, no, I asked him to stop. And he stopped, drove me home, said it was his fault, said he was tired and confused and that it wasn't working anymore. He was afraid he couldn't hold it back. But in the end, he said he knew what he had to do. He had to end it for good. He clearly felt guilty about cheating on you. That's what he was talking about, right? (sighs) Which again, like when we're reading that, he's talking about his life. He's talking about his urges. But in her mind, you know, it's this guilt about cheating on his wife. So Beth is horrified, does not share that with the class, (laughs) and lets Madeline drive away as Beth watches.
0: So this was a moment that stood out to me, especially Madeline's arrival to the house, because of course, we're getting the sense that there may be parallel universes or multiple realities happening at once. But when Madeline knocks on the door with those three paced knocks, it sounds just like those knocks from that first night that Beth was by herself. That paired with Beth standing in the doorway and then waking up on the couch, that scene is getting me thinking about like some kind of time situation that's going on here. Like it doesn't feel like we're moving linearly. It feels like maybe there are some time loops that are going on or some kind of like at least loss of a sense of time is going on, which I think is noteworthy. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into it because how many ways are there for you to knock on a door seriously? Like the three knocks is pretty standard, but it still feels significant enough.
1: It feels like Madeline and Beth are connected in a way. Oh, yeah, her dream. Owen. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: you were even mentioning that before we were recording, like the fact that they were dreaming that they were each other.
0: Yes, and that happens again later. We'll get to there. But yes, you're right. There's like a overlapping going on between these women. It's interesting, too, because you can't always tell right away because they do look so much alike, but it's there. And now I'm kind of wondering, like, if I even missed more times that it could have happened. Anyway, interesting. Beth
1: drinks some more, walks through the woods to the house in the rain, goes inside and says, listen, we need to talk and I'm not leaving till we do. Don't you want to talk to me? Just come get me. Wherever you are, come get me. She ends up dropping her flashlight and when she goes to pick it up, a floorboard gives out underneath her weight. And as she peeks underneath, she sees first a body and then multiple bodies wrapped in plastic. She runs outside, back to her house, cries and calls Claire, who does not answer, but she leaves her a message that is very cryptic and would be very terrifying for a friend to hear from their other friend, saying that, I know who my husband is, I refuse to believe that he would have done this, I wish it were morning, I wish it were here, like, all this kind of stuff. So very confusing, very distressing. She then decides to take a shower. I wrote, I would not be. Like... <laughs> Like, what about that makes you want to be like, I want to be very vulnerable right now. Like, I want to be naked. I want to be cleaning myself off. Maybe
0: maybe because she is confused about the reality of what she saw. Mm -hmm. Maybe she thinks this is going to wake her up or sober her up somehow. But also, I have to say, at that point when she finds the bodies in that mirror duplicate house... I wrote a note about something about this house giving the picture of Dorian Gray, which is so fucking weird because you brought up this actress being in an adaptation of that because obviously we're getting information about her husband's dual life. And it's like he gets to have this beautiful house that he lives in with his beautiful wife on one end of the lake. But it almost seems like there's this other house on the other side of the lake that gets to deteriorate over time and houses all of these bodies of women that he killed as if like the house across the lake as opposed to the portrait in the attic. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was intentional as far as the actors goes, but I wonder if that kind of connection is intentional. So as
1: she's in the shower, we get a close-up on the statue. Okay, something's about to happen. And then the music kicks on. And it's been the same song this entire time, which we're presuming has some sentimental value to their marriage. Perhaps it's their, like, wedding song. And I have shit on that later that I'll talk about. (gasps) So Beth exits the shower, investigates, and the music shuts itself off. She tells him to stop it, asks where he is for him to come back. And this is the first time we see her cry. She starts sobbing and says, I miss you so much. And as she stops crying and looks up, she looks in the steam on the bathroom mirror and it says, here. So she gets up, approaches, clears the word with her hand, and sees wet footprints on the floor behind her. And as she, like, stands and faces where he would be, she reaches out and meets resistance. And we see this resistance on her fingertips. I love the way this was filmed. We see the indents on her fingertips as she's running her hands across his chest, hugging his back, touching his face. She hugs the figure and begs it to hold her back, which it does. We see some indentations on her arms and her back, showing that she is being embraced. She says, you're really here. And the voice says, yes, I'm here. She says, Owen? And the voice says, no, I'm not Owen.
0: (laughs) Chills, chills everywhere. Chills. And then suddenly the bathroom door slams behind her, locking her into the bathroom. She whirls around to the mirror and sees the look-alike, one of the look-alike Beths looking back at her. So this is a moment she had heard about Madeline dreaming in her shoes. Now she is seeing another woman's reflection in the mirror before her. Beth tries to turn and run from the vision, but she's thrown back against the mirror by the entity shattering the mirror. Suddenly, the bathroom door is open. And when she emerges, she notices that everything is backward. Somehow she has ended up in what seems like the backward house. But like her nice house has become the backward house. Like it's not the dilapidated backward house. It's like in
1: Candyman where Helen crawls through the bathroom mirror into the backwards like apartment complex where it's like real. But in this case, she is feeling like she's in like a separate dimension, seeing the events that have taken place in the backwards house occur over and over again. Yes. She walks out of the bathroom disoriented and sees women hiding under the bed in the closet and they are urging her, hide from him, hide. She watches as Owen drags a woman's body into the bedroom, presumably from the head smashing that occurred in the bathroom that she just witnessed, and a shadowy figure in the corner watching him tie her up. She runs downstairs to see Owen hooking up with another woman as the figure watches them again. So as Owen is doing all these things, there is the shadowy figure that seems to be approving or like driving some of his actions. And she turns around again to see herself being dragged down a hallway. And then she is physically dragged down a hallway past all of these rooms where she continuously watches Owen killing multiple women before she's thrown down the stairs. And when she's thrown down the stairs, she sees Owen sitting in front of a fireplace with a Christmas tree up where she sees her own head in his lap asleep as he pets her head. The voice begins talking through Owen. The voice says, you left the night that we met. Beth says, you're not Owen. The voice says, I'm what you felt when your heart stopped. She's like, no, I felt. The voice answers, nothing. Do you remember? You saw me. I've been with you ever since. She's like, what did you do to my husband? And it responds, I went to him. I whispered in his ear over and over to send you back. And then we see Owen in that present moment where we could tell he was experiencing the voice for the first time, almost strangled Beth in her sleep, but he stops himself in a panicked way, kisses her forehead instead and cradles her. And the voice continues, but he wouldn't. He sent me them instead. And she's like, so he tricked you. And the voice says, for a while. So she wakes up in her body's place in Owen's lap, but instead of Owen looking down on her, it's nothing. It's this shadowy figure. She tries to run away. He stops her, tells her not to fight, and restrains her, and she ends up being lifted off the ground, choking in the red light, and her body contorts into the Louvet doll's pose midair. So with her ankles to her wrists, her chest exposed in that submissive pose, She looks back to see the two moons mirroring each other, the present and the blood
0: red moon, and she passes out. Then morning has come, and we see Claire arriving to the house. She has gotten Beth's voicemail, but Beth is nowhere to be found. Claire makes her way into the house and sees remnants of what we know to be the violence from the night before, the disheveledness, the broken mirror in the bathroom, and she starts yelling for Beth. She ventures into the basement office area, sees... The box of Owen's belongings everywhere and notices that the gun that had been given back from evidence is missing. It is missing from its bag. So this confirms at least that Lisa something very serious is going on and she continues her search. But meanwhile, Beth awakes on the boat, still in that other realm, and she is out on the lake just as Owen was when he killed himself. And she
1: sees the vision of Owen in front of her, looking like it was him in the moments before he killed himself. And Owen reads the note that he wrote her, seals it, and puts it on a pile next to his clothes, which he found bloodied up before, and holds the guns in his hands, shaking. She asks where Owen is, and the voice answers, gone, but you already knew that. Meanwhile, Claire is running down the stairs, sees all the books and the doll on the floor, and looks out the window to see Beth slumped over in the boat. The voice says, he thought he could protect you, he was wrong, and you were right. And Beth looks down to see the gun in her hands. The voice continues, there is nothing, there is only me, come back to me. And Beth's finger is on the trigger as Mel and Claire converge on the dock trying to save her. Beth appears to hear Claire calling for her from the present. And the voice says, it doesn't matter. Let go. Come back to me. But instead, Beth drops the gun and wakes in the present as Claire swims out to her, pulls her into the water, (laughs) which seems to wake her up. They go back to the dock together. Claire assures her that she's here for her, that she's safe now. Again, mirroring that thing from the note, you're safe now. Claire hugs Beth, and Beth and Mel stare out into the water. Meth is very much trying to follow her gaze, where he doesn't see anything. I'm so sorry, you said meth. (laughs) No. I can't do it. I can't do
0: it. I'm so sorry, but... (laughs) I'm
1: so sorry. No, again, it. it simply can't. Okay, Claire hugs Beth as she stares out. into I'm so fucking. No, this is good. This is so good. Okay, oh okay, 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 okay. Claire hugs Beth as she stares out into the water. Mel tries to follow her gaze, and they both look at the empty boat, but Beth sees the ripples in the water reflect that nothing is still there. And Mel says, what is it? There's nothing there. And Beth says, I know. And that's the end of the movie.
0: Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, I was sobbing.
1: <laughs> you, were, you had a, a big emotional response to this movie.
0: I didn't know that it was going to – this is, you know, of course at this point, especially if you've seen The Babadook or at least listened to our episode, you have probably started to identify a lot of those parallels where clearly, you know, we have a literal storyline that's happening here. But there's also a lot of stuff that's going on metaphorically about commentary on grief, loss, friendship – All of those big, big, big emotions are so much at play here. And I was not expecting that. I didn't realize that there was going to be that angle. And so, of course, at the end, when Claire is swimming towards her friend in the water and Mel is on the dock and, you know, there's all this heightened fear if if they're going to be able to get to Beth through her grief or her depression. Oh, my gosh. Like, it was terrifying. It was beautiful. And I was crying.
1: Going into some post-plot trivia, Rebecca Hall choreographed her movements with nothing herself. What do you mean her movement?
0: Like, in the fight scene?
1: And, like, the embrace scene and all that kind of stuff. Like, she thought there would be a choreographer on scene to see, like, how she's being impacted by an invisible force, but she did all of that herself. How did they make it look like she was touching something? I mean, I'm guessing that was like a practical effect of her touching like a green screen man, but in terms of like, how their movements and like what she was doing and how she was touching him. And I think the scene on the dock where, you know, she was feeling that embrace and all that kind of stuff, like all of that was choreographed herself. Obviously, I think the contorting was done by some wires and shit. but like (laughs) I found that interesting. On her interest in the role, Rebecca Hall said, To me, there was something fundamentally interesting about the idea of a woman dealing with the aftermath of a suicide of a loved one and being left with a sense of, I didn't know that person. And if they were capable of that, what else were they capable of? In a weird way, Beth imagining the worst version of her husband, the most monstrous version of him, is almost easier to process than the reality of what happened. I thought that was compelling and fascinating and true in a way on an instinctive level.
0: That makes so much sense. Even though I think you and I had both said a couple times earlier in this episode, we can't really tell reality from Beth's imagination, I still got to the end of that movie and was like, there are two ways to look at this film. Either A, it's entirely a metaphor for grief, or B, her husband was literally a serial killer. But her quote suggests that there was a break with reality long before that, and she was imagining the worst of the Mm -hmm. situation, which I kind of fucking love. Because it makes so much sense with her character and the anger we see her experiencing in the beginning of this film. Right. Like, that turbulence of coping. And that makes so much sense. Like, she would sooner imagine the scenario, maybe based on that one photo she really did see in her husband's camera roll. She would imagine, imagine, because it was easier to feel than her husband's absence itself. hmm Wow. I have a lot of post-plot
1: stuff, starting with an interpretation of the ending. This is from an article, The Night House. Let's talk about that ending by Matt Goldberg. It's a Collider article. We love Collider. (laughs) So he writes, at the climax of the film, we learn exactly how this dark world has been operating. Owen built a mirror image of the house, a quidroya. again, if I'm fucking that up, I'm fucking that up, (laughs) to trap the evil spirit that had been pursuing Beth since her death. We're talking about the death she experienced when she was 17. In the Nighthouse, nothingness is manifest as something. It's a dark force that bent Owen to its will, and he tried to fight back by using dark arts to keep it at bay, so he built the Nighthouse on the opposite side of the lake, and when that ceased to work, he started killing women who looked like Beth in hopes that the nothingness could be fooled, which it admits it was for a time. But now that Owen is gone, the nothingness has finally come for Beth, and she's only saved at the last minute by the shouts of friend Claire, who brings Beth back to the land of the living and away from the verge of suicide. The nothingness that pursues Beth could easily stand in for depression and trauma, and that's why the final shot is so important. You see the silhouette of the nothingness on the water, and it's a reminder that this darkness will never be completely gone. It's something Beth will have to be conscious of and fight off for the rest of her life, which is very real for people that wrestle with depression and trauma. We like to think that one can be cured of these things, but in reality, it's an ongoing battle. So then I found this really good article by Tracy Palmer called The Nighthouse Ending Explained, Louvet Dolls, Quidroya, and the Nothing. She goes through and explains all of these little repeating motifs throughout and like what they could mean and the historical aspects of it. So I thought this was important. Okay, so this is about the Cadroya, which we just looked up the pronunciation <laughs> of. So if I fucked it up prior to this, sorry. <laughs> so one of the books Owen had been reading was the Cadroya. It is the basis for the house he designed and built in duplicate. Based on the Welsh turf mazes or Cadroya, the house was supposed to be a puzzle that nothing could not solve. Like Daedalus's labyrinth, the twisting staircases and mirrored other lake house were created to trick and trap the nothing. It was all for Beth's safety. Quadroia means Walls of Troy after Greek City, where it was rumored to be easy to enter but impossible to escape because of the deceptively designed streets and buildings. Loosely translated, Quadroia means House of turns, which is exactly what Owen designed. He created the two mirrored homes as a way to lure the entity away from Beth. The Beth lookalikes he killed furthered the ruse. After his death, the house became traps for Beth, trapping her in isolation and her pain. Night after night, she searched for answers that she would never find. The search would consume her if given a chance. So this is on the Louvre doll. The early Egyptian voodoo doll is a real thing on display currently in Paris at the Louvre Museum. Owen creates one of his own as a way to bind the nothing to him and away from Beth. The image of the bound woman with 13 pins stuck in her is so disturbing, Beth has no choice but to begin to question her husband's impulses. Ultimately, it appeared he was trying to protect her from the nothing by binding it to the other house and himself. Historically, dolls and curse tablets were used to bind people and spirits. The doll was traditionally made from clay or whey and stabbed with wood, copper, or other metals and placed in a sealed container or underwater. If the doll was removed, the curse was lifted. Unfortunately, by the time Beth finds the doll, the vessel it was in was broken. Did the container break during one of Owen's murders, thus releasing the demon, or did it happen inadvertently during a storm? It probably doesn't matter, as the real question was, is there a demon at all? And then this is about Beth and Owen's wedding song, The Calvary Cross, by Richard and Linda Thompson. One of the most effective auditory jump scares comes from a stereo blasting Beth and Owen's wedding song. Once a source of comfort and happiness, the melancholy tune is now reduced to a jarring disturbance in the night. The song itself is a strange choice and the lyrics convey more meaning than you think. So reading some of the lyrics, I was under the Calvary cross, the pale-faced lady, she said to me, I've watched you with my one green eye and I'll hurt you till you need me. You scuff your heels and you spit on your shoes You do nothing with reason. One day you catch a train, never leaves the station. Everything you do, everything you do, you do for me. Now you can make believe your tin whistle and you can be my broom boy. Scrub me till I shine in the dark. I'll be your light till doomsday. Oh, it's a black cat crossed your path and why don't you follow? My claws in you and my lights in you. This is your first day of sorrow. Everything you
0: do, everything you do, you do for me. Wow, the song sounds so jolly. I didn't even realize it was creepy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what this person
1: says. The song is about a hidden drive that you must try to deny or not even know is there and yet you are beholden to it. As romantic as being a slave to love is, it's also very dark. The idea that you lose yourself to each other is unhealthy. For the couple to jointly choose such a lamenting and strange song is very telling. Beth may have been depressed, but Owen had his own problems. Clues such as the song lyrics and the impeccable set design paint a picture of control and dependence. The home in which Owen designed has very few feminine touches. It does not feel like Beth is comfortable there. Even before Owen's death, it is hard to imagine her living amongst the austere wood and stone, his claw in her slowly leeching away her light. He may have ultimately chose to end his life rather than take hers, but he had control the entire time. Yeah. Interesting. That is. It's not the most compelling part of the article, but I thought that was interesting because we hear the song multiple times throughout. This is on the grief as nothing. As a metaphor for grief, the night house is a lonely rumination on the toll mental illness takes on those who suffer and those who must watch their loved ones go through it. If the nothing is indeed just the couple's joint struggles, the mound of dead bodies in the other house, teeth grating scares throughout, and bumps in the night are Beth's unreliable narration. This is what she thought happened, but not what actually did. There was no void monster, no demon hurling her into mirrors or twisting her into knots. Her husband wasn't trying some elaborate but brutal scheme to protect her, and the drawing stereo either had a short or never turned on at all. It could have been all in her head. The teens who ran by her house and jumped off into the cliff were never explained, and likely they never existed." Owen was a troubled man with a nasty homicidal streak, and Beth was a depressed woman too caught up in her own problems to see her husband's. Mm. Both of them had their demons. Hers, she was open about, but did she lean on Owen too much? Did he become infected by her melancholy ideas? Was he always a killer? And he infected her with his madness. The ending of The Night House works on this level as well. Depression can be managed and controlled, but it can't be cured. It is something that is a constant struggle for sufferers and for Beth. The ending is her resolution to that fight. She chooses to live a harsh life in the light where at least there is a possibility of happiness than live in The Night House where only death survives. And then lastly, on the notes dual meaning. You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You are safe. If Owen wanted to truly help, he should have spelled out what and who was chasing Beth. It would have saved everyone a ton of time and been more effective. As it is, the enigmatic note told her what she needed to know. Beth and her husband had disagreed on what came after death. She believed as a result of her experience, there was no heaven, no hell, no white light. He thought otherwise until the nothing came calling to him. His suicide note was her telling her she was right in believing there was nothing. It was just a capital N, not a lowercase n. Nothing is and always has been after her. He thought by killing himself, he was keeping her safe. Unfortunately, he did not realize he left her alone with nothing, where her choice was to follow him into death or fight
0: back. Wow. I'm interested in this idea that in this metaphor, both Beth and Owen are troubled with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting because right now I'm thinking about the show Big Mouth. (laughs) Because you know how those middle school kids are assigned different beings based on where they are in puberty? Like there's the shame monster and the depression cat. Mm -hmm. That idea that each person gets assigned their own hormone monster, monster, wizard is so different from this. It seems like nothing, capital N, affects both Beth and Owen so differently. Beth has known about this nothing for a long time. She's talked about it. She's been open about it, like this article said. But Owen was affected so differently by that same nothing. Like, why couldn't the nothing just talk to Beth? Mm -hmm. Was it trying to, but she was more open about it and nothing lost its power over her? It had to divert to going after Owen and eventually leading him to kill himself. So it's like, it's the same nothing, but it's affecting these people so differently. Part of me
1: thinks it's like the age in which Beth came into contact with nothing. And perhaps this is just the way that like women process versus how men process. And I'm not saying there's a stark difference in gender, but there is a difference in gender in terms of women being sad is a little bit more accepted or women experiencing mental illness is a little bit more of what the mainstream is. And I'm trying to think of what the beginning of Owen and Beth's marriage looked like, like, obviously, they were married, and then he was focused on building this house, and then he was focused on building this other house. And now they've been married for 15 years. And there's not too much he can escape to anymore. Like he can't bury himself in work. He can't do all of these things where Beth accepted the entire time that nothing was after her or that there was a darkness. Owen had been characterized up until that point as somebody who believed that, like, good prevails. There's life after death. There's heaven and hell, all these types of things. So when nothing came for him... It was darker Mm. and it was drearier and it was heavier than with Beth, who had experiences with mental illness in the past and kind of took this on the chin as like, yes, this is something I go through. Depression is something. Whereas when it reaches somebody who otherwise may not have had mental health struggles or mental health experiences, and especially knowing the way that men process mental health, they don't talk about it as much. They don't reach out to their friends. And I find this so much more obvious with Claire and Beth's friendship, where Beth is telling Claire everything, is confiding in her, is sharing with her everything. And we don't know that Owen ever did. And when Owen did, it was in that fleeting moment with Mel. So talking about how Owen could have had these mental health struggles and he was not privy to the way to deal with it, so it became much more heavier, so he took much more drastic ways of dealing with it versus how she had always been open about it with Owen. She knew that there was a darkness, there was a nothing, and he helped her fend it off, but he didn't feel invited to seek help in the same way.
0: Well, statistically, suicide rates are higher in men. Yeah. And I just saw the Barbie movie last night. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I am thinking about the commentary that movie makes in some ways about the patriarchy and what it means for men and what it means for women. And unfortunately, a lot of times for men, it does kind of mean this pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Do not give into your emotions. You must be this stoic, physical person. I don't know. There are more eloquent ways to say it, but I do see parallels here with that mentality, especially how these two people are dealing with what is in this movie the same entity, but means different things to both people. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that depression or grief is always going to lead women to deal with it one way and always going to lead men. That's not the statement I'm making, but it is interesting to see this husband and wife living in the same house, how it can impact them so differently. And especially to thinking back about them getting married very young. I mean, yeah, you were so young and you changed so much over the years. There's an expectation that you should know your spouse the best of all. But is that even true? And I want to give you time to go back to
1: that single woman grief thing, too.
0: Yes. So something that stood out to me about this movie is how, like, midway even towards the end of this movie, Beth was very greedy with her grief. Like, yes, she was telling Claire key details, but she was like, no, I need to go home. She would talk to the nothing saying, well, who she thought was Owen, like, show yourself, show yourself to me. Like, she was greedy with that time. Like, she didn't seem scared as much as she seemed curious. And to me, it stood out as something like, this person lost her husband, who she loved very much, and now this grief is what she feels she has left of him. This alone time with her thoughts of him. And it's kind of like that feeling like when you lose somebody you love and you almost feel guilty about smiling for the first time afterwards or laughing with your friend for the first time afterwards because it's almost the feeling of that moving on, separating you from that person for good and for real. And especially as a single woman, they never had children as far as we know and she's living by herself in this big house. It felt like something I could relate to. Sometimes we talk about things in movies that are always gonna be scarier to us than other things, like body horror Mm -hmm. or like, this is something that's always going to be scary to me, like this alone with your thoughts reality. Or even more so than that, like the illusion of being alone. Because we know that Mel was right next door and he's a great guy. And we know that Claire is a good friend. But she still felt alone and she was greedy with that alone time. And I think that it made it really easy to see how that nothing could attach itself to her. Even the fact that she was angry instead of sorrowful, Mm -hmm. that was
1: refreshing for me to see that grief manifests in different ways. And sometimes it is that hyper focus. Sometimes it is that fixation. Sometimes it is that I need to block everybody out because I'm so angry that I'm in this situation that there isn't even time for sorrow. And you had even mentioned, you know, we've been making comparisons to The Babadook this entire time. prior to recording we were talking about like a lot of the Babadook is coming from Samuel's perspective the young boy how he's seeing grief impact his mom and as much as that story is about Amelia and her grief it's about how Samuel is externalizing the grief and how if Beth had to be taking care of a child that you know resembled Owen like how much that story would immediately not become about her and what she's going through like there is only room for how this is impacting her and I think again as two childless people People, that makes it so much more relatable of if we were to lose our partner, what would our lives be looking like?
0: Based on what you said and also thinking back to our conversation about Beth being a teacher and this is her summer break, I think a big part of this movie is the physical isolation that having a kid running around would just completely shatter. She's on a fucking lake. And yeah, Mel is her neighbor, but you know, I don't know how far away his house is. You know, you got to walk to get there. Like anytime you see a shot of the house, it's not like it's the suburbs or some kind of community in that way. Like these houses are more spaced out. When she looks out at night, the only thing she can see in that one dream sequence is the lit up house across. Like, you don't see any other lights when you look out onto that lake. And yes, she's a working woman, but it's her summer break. So again, this like physical isolation, I think, feeds so much into what she feels on the inside. Devastating movie. It is so devastating, but really freaking good and really striking. I liked how there was the thrill of a mystery in this movie. The curiosity of what is going on with this parallel house? Who was Owen really? I watched this movie ravenously. Like I wanted to know what was going on. I felt so committed to it. If you haven't seen it and you feel like it wasn't spoiled for you by hearing every detail at this point, (laughs) definitely watch it. It's really something.
1: Yeah, it was about time we got back to a moody one. We were excited
0: (laughs) to like revisit some sad
1: girl roots a little bit. We're diving into a new release next
0: week, which we're excited about. We are very excited. We are covering Talk to Me. Which will be out in theaters
1: still by the time we put it out. I'm so scared.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've heard nothing but good things about this movie, which means that it's very scary, (laughs) according to critics, which is bad news for me. So if you want to keep in touch about what we're doing, if you want to get in touch with us about recommendations, we do always love to hear your recommendations. Please either email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.